Hello and welcome to Healing from Within. I am your host, Cheryl Glick, Reiki Master Energy Teacher and author of my newest book in a trilogy, A New Life Awaits, which offers stories and messages from spirit which show us our challenges are not simply economic, political, or societal, but a divide or disconnect from our inner soul wisdom. In today's show, I am delighted to welcome Claudia Gold, a pediatrician and author of The Power of Discord, to help us recognize uh, that though people think perfect harmony is the defining characteristic of healthy relationships, the truth is human relations and interactions are messy, complicated, and confusing, but are crucial to social and emotional development. Hello, Dr. Gold. Hello. And thank you for joining us on Healing from Within to explore human and energetic development in order to improve self-realization and personal growth. Isn't that what it's all about, life? Isn't that what we want to do? Learn and love and grow. So, Claudia, as listeners of Healing from Within have come to expect over the years, my intuitive and insightful guests and I share an understanding of the challenges of a physical three-dimensional life and also grow to appreciate the many spiritual tools and gifts we share in order to improve the human and divine connection and condition uh, through relating to challenges with full awareness of who we are, why we choose a physical life, and how to improve all relationships through awareness and higher consciousness. Because that's really the purpose of a physical life, relationships, and learning how to uh, change our thoughts so we can create uh, a better path for everybody going forward. Claudia, I always love to ask my guests, my open-minded and interesting guests, to think back to their childhood and remember perhaps a person, a place, maybe an event that might have signaled to them or others around them what lifestyle, what work, what values they might pursue in adulthood. For it appears that within us is a template or guide and life plan that unfolds as we explore life in a physical world. So think back to something when you were younger that was meaningful to you. Okay, um, I have a very clear understanding of what events in my childhood led me on the path that I'm on now. Um, I'll start with the positive. Uh, my mother's a child psychologist, um, and she had her practice in our home. So I was it had my room in the back of the apartment, and so I would see these kids come and go. Um, so I definitely had this sense of my mother doing this very important work and supporting these families, um, and that was really an inspiration to me. Mm. Um, so that was a, a really a positive uh, influence on my life. Um, I would say there are things from my childhood that also... Ha were problematic that have had tremendous influence on the direction my life has taken and those uh, really are rooted in my parents own history my father is a, a holocaust survivor although he would never describe himself that way he escaped as a 
a teenager in 1939, and my home was one where everything was always fine, um, and problems were not discussed, and people were discouraged from being upset, angry, all of those things. Um, and so I learned that all the full range of my emotional experience was not acceptable, and that was very difficult. Um, sure. So... So that's kind of the negative influence on what I do in my work now, which is an effort to really give voice to children so that they don't, other children don't don't have that experience of feeling silenced and unheard. Yeah, that's very important. So we must work through our emotions. We have to feel it and we have to not stay in the energy of any negative emotion. We have to experience all the emotions, but we have to be allowed to move through it. And you you weren't allowed to do that. You had to learn to restrict yourself. See, I was the I was a very sensitive child and um I was very intuitive though I wasn't aware of it at the time. And I did see uh energy forms at my window even though I was three floors up so I was aware of spirit and uh, I couldn't talk about it because it wasn't appreciated my father and mother were very methodical my father was a mm-hmm. podiatrist and my mother was a legal secretary so uh, there was no room for anything that couldn't be seen or proven so mm-hmm. but still mm-hmm. I was so sensitive, and when I felt things going wrong for myself or other people, I, it just came out of me. I couldn't really contain it. It was just, it would come out like a force, either uh, in joy or in crying. And then I caught people's attention, and they knew something was wrong. So uh, that served me well as a child. But uh, being a bit different, having different gifts, and being later on in the gifted class and moving quickly through school, uh, there were challenges like yours. There mm. were some things I couldn't share because not everybody was able to um, discuss or be part of some of the things that I was part of. They just mm. didn't didn't have the acumen for it, you know. So let's go on to Dr. Tronick, your co-author in the book, talks about the still face experiment which has brought about a game-changing shift in our understanding of human development. The experiment shows that our highly evolved sense of self makes us separate, yet our survival depends on connection. Tell us how we can gain confidence in learning about one's one another's desires and correct the mistakes and misunderstanding uh, that arise. And what is the still-faced experiment? Okay, so I'll obviously answer the second part first. Right, So the yeah. still-faced experiment grew out of a hypothesis that babies, from the moment they're born, have a very active role in their social world. Um, so before he did this experiment, and even today, often people think of babies as kind of just responding to their environment and not having their own sort of sense of uh, uh, agency or, or I- intentions. Um, and he had gone on, on rounds, on pediatric rounds with Dr. Brazelton, who was a big influence on him, and observed babies and saw, well, actually, babies have an awful lot to say, even from birth. 
So he designed an experiment where the baby would be left, where we could sort of uh, dissect out what was the baby's part. So what he would do is he would have a mother and a baby have an interaction uh, as they typically would, and then he would ask the mother to have a still face. So with the prevailing view, the expectation was that the baby wouldn't do anything. But the baby did so much, and the baby just sort of pulled out this whole bag of tricks to get the mother to engage with him, mm. starting from very early in infancy. So it shows that babies have this tremendous capacity, um, and it's all it's really very hopeful when you look. The still face can be kind of disturbing when you first view it, but it's, you show that the baby expects that they can act on the situation and they can get their mother to respond. And then, of course, the mother does respond again. Of course. And that's kind of because typical. Because, you, you, of... know, you know, people, I always tell people, don't talk to, to babies with words like goo-goo and gaga and, you know. The soul is, the soul of the child is very advanced and very astute. And they do have intentions and they are aware and they're interacting, as you just said, in the still face experiment. Uh, it's amazing how much they they know, but are just not able to show at the very beginning until they develop language and motor skills. But we have to well, treat them as 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 we have to treat them as uh, what's the word I want to say? Not as adults, but we have to treat them as aware beings. Of great right. potential, Confident, connected, right? Beings. Yes, right. And they do have even way before words. They yes. have language through their movements, mm-hmm. um, right from birth. So, and the idea, uh, w- the um, to get to the first part of your question, um, it's through the kind of uh, misunderstandings, the the in- inevitable. They say you have two separate people, a baby and a parent, and they the the baby has to learn what the world is all about, and, and they're different people. Um, and so it's through the kind of mismatches and the misunderstanding and then reconnecting that the, the baby gets a sense of connection with another person, but also a sense of their own uh, separateness, their own self. So both of those... Uh, Are very important, important. yes. Yeah. And when those processes yes. go wrong, that's when children develop trauma that goes with them into adulthood and takes uh, sometimes a long time to uh, understand, realize how it began and to get through the hurt or whatever is holding them back uh, from their full Mm -hmm. potential. Now, you wrote in the book uh, this. How is it that some people enjoy a range of satisfying intimate social connections while others suffer from painful feelings of disconnect and loneliness? Why are some human beings sad, withdrawn, and lacking in self-esteem, whereas others are angry, unfocused, and brittlely self-assertive, and still others are happy, curious, affectionate, and self-confident? How is our ability to feel a sense of belonging and attachment to other people linked with the way we develop our individual sense of self? The answers to these questions is why the authors wrote this book. So, that's the truth right there. <laughs> Why people mm-hmm. are different. Some of it is inborn, their temperament, and maybe even what happened before they were born. 
uh, and others are environmental, right? But in answering these questions as doctors and as a pediatrician, um, you became aware, well, there was a doctor you mentioned, D.W. Winnicott. Yes. That yes. was very, 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 very interesting yes. to me. So tell us about that. Yeah. Well, Winnicott has been a very major influence on my work. So he was a pediatrician um, in Great Britain, kind of like a British Dr. Spock. Um, and he was also a psychoanalyst. So he had tremendous wisdom based on the kind of uh, the combination of these two experiences where he was immersed in uh, parent-infant relationships in his pediatric practice and then he would have patients who would, in relation to him, re- what he called regress to dependence. So they would behave in a baby, like a baby with him being kind of like their mother figure but they could talk because they were adults. So he was able to get a lot of very profound insight into human nature and human development. Um, and that his thinking really underlies a lot of the book and is very much in keeping with Dr. Tronick's research, in particular this, this idea of the good enough parent, and that is, that, which is similar, that it's when, when the mother or the father or whatever caregiver doesn't always exactly know what the baby intends and at the beginning, it's very close when the baby is totally helpless. But that process of kind of trying to find each other in that is, is essential. It's not just that it's okay to make mistakes, but it's essential to make mistakes because that's where the child develops the ability to trust, to be close with other people, but also to have their own sense of solid sense of self. Yeah, and that's not always so easy because young parents or older parents, it really doesn't matter, uh, most of us are not trained to be parents, right? It takes a great deal of skill and knowing this. I I mean, I was an elementary school teacher long ago before I moved into other areas of my life. And um, even that, they can teach you, but it takes, I would say, a good 15 years of trial and error before you become proficient at almost any career or any skill. You know, it takes practice and consistency and wanting to do it. And, uh, of course, not everybody has the desire or the ability. And that's why we have so many people who run into trouble along the way. It's not that their parents meant to be harmful. They just didn't have the skills to do what was necessary. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure I would use the word skills. I think parents uh, have, you know, natural intuition. But what happens is when parents are stressed themselves, yes, as they are tremendously stressed in our world here in the United States with lack of paid parental leave, lack of adequate childcare. Parents just, you know, systemic issues like racism, poverty community violence, all of those things. They're overwhelmed. Yeah, they're overwhelmed. So they're overwhelmed. So it's not that they need to be taught how to be parents. I think most parents know how to be parents, but they're just not supported in their role because they're so stressed and overwhelmed. Yes, they have so many other issues going on in their own personal lives. So they're not always uh, able to 
divide, you know, separate well, the two. Yeah, they and, need to. Well, right. I think our society needs overall needs to do a much better job of holding and valuing parents. Yes, um, I agree and, with you. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of the problem, and they need help in in parenting. It takes a village to to make right. to to raise a child. So has technology recreated the still-faced paradigm for developing children? Well, I would say no. There's a, there is distinct differences between the still-faced and a parent being on a phone, although I would say that a parent being on a phone all the time is problematic, mostly because their attention is not on their child, um, it, kind of in the way that it, if, if you were on a the old-fashioned phone. A child would have a similar kind of response um, if a parent was talking on the phone with their friends all day long and not interacting with a young child. The, the thing about the cell phone is that it's so ubiquitous and, and social media has this addictive quality, but a parent on a, if a baby is with a parent who's on a cell phone, um, there is some sense to be made of that. You know, the parent is doing something else that's not paying attention to the baby. Right. But the still face is something that the baby struggles to make sense of. Um, so it, it has some, you know, subtle differences. Well, with the still face, the, the child, the baby has a chance to assert their own personality. And with a cell yes. phone, uh, the parents are asserting their, their need for the uh, use of it, and uh, the child can feel really neglected, right? So in my new book, I wrote, something about technology in a new life awaits and um, I wrote that technology as being both a tool for advancement as well as a damaging influence on human evolution while technology is necessary it must be used reverently and simply as a tool or it will ultimately change the way people interact with one another the planet and universe Research on happiness, health, and well-being shows us that maintaining social interaction and relationships is still the key in creating and sustaining a happier and healthier population. When people are less involved in socialization processes and are limited from speaking one-on-one, face-to-face, they lose the ability to understand body language and to gain more information from the actual physical reactions that come from this type of interaction. Text messages and emails are being overused and seem to be dehumanizing and affecting our capacity to feel, empathize, and communicate with skill, which aids in receiving pleasurable responses. So this is something we're dealing with that almost 10 years ago was not a problem for us. Now let's go on to an important topic. Is there a connection between autism and technology? There's so much autism now, more than when I was a child, Mm -hmm. or you were a child. So what's happening with that? Um, well, I think that the the data is that the, the rise in autism significantly preceded the, the rise in uh, social media use. But it's, compl- it's a complicated relationship between uh, technology and autism because you know you have a child who has is overwhelmed 
often by their the sensory input of their mm-hmm. environment and and so for for some children who carry that diagnosis use of technology can actually be very organizing um so to say that it's completely bad um is problematic i think but what can happen is a parent who is struggling to connect with a vulnerable child whose cues are difficult to read they may be drawn to the comfort of uh connection through social media uh which then um makes uh it more difficult to connect with the child you know because they have the option of being on the phone kind of to reduce their own stress so i think that the relationship between the features of what we call autism and use of social media are are really complicated and intertwined and related to both the child and the parent and and yes it can uh help it can actually help to self regulate reduce stress and anxiety so so it technology ha- has many many important aspects to helping all children and the only problem is that seems to me so many children are plugged in now we can't say that they're all sensory uh you know dealing with sensory issues they're just all how can i say <laughs> Using yeah, it I mean, especially to escape now or, or right. and in the last two years with COVID and yeah. the isolation, yeah. it, it's gotten worse. But we will work on that. There, there are ways to work on that. So, what happens yeah. when we don't? This, this is interesting. What happens when we don't feel known or seen by others as we feel ourselves to be, and when lack of love is deadly? can be deadly so I've heard people say to me I just want to be known right well I think that's really what drives all human interaction is this wish to be seen and and understood Um, and that's how people feel connected Um, and so uh, that, that lack of love can be deadly reference comes from a very extreme uh, version of that, which was in um, uh, kids who were uh, in nurseries where there was like one caregiver for um, many, many kids, and, and so they didn't have any primary caregiver. And in those situations, uh, kids, babies actually fail to grow and gain weight, and some of them actually die. Um, so that's that's what that reference comes from. So that's an extreme situation of emotional Yeah, neglect. the deaths were due to a um, lack of consistent caretaking or a lack of love. And then you tell about the, uh, there were two. There was the nursery, and then there was the um, other place where the children, oh, I think it was in a prison, and the children they could be with their mothers they yes. could be with their mothers they weren't right. totally right. separated and what was it 37% of the children died in the orphanages and in the nursery yeah, there were, wasn't a single child in the nursery yes right. uh, it was Renee Spitz's work um, yeah it was a, a very striking number of kids yes who, who died well I was aware of this but not this particular I was aware of of the phenomenon but not of this particular study and it 
it's quite interesting that not one single child was lost through death in the foundling homes or the orphanages. But on the other hand, 37% died uh, where there was no connection. They were left. Right. They were they were bathed and they were fed and they were put in cribs. But we need much more than that to survive. Right. Life is about relationships. So you go on to say you find hope. I like this a lot. Hope in in uncertainty, and that the tyranny of certainty certainty can lead us away from growth. I like this a lot. Could you tell us something about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, which is that a, when a baby comes into the world, um, they don't know anything. And it's through these sort of micro moments of uncertainty. Like, what is the baby saying? What's happening? How do, well, you know, that, that you get through that and you get to this moment of connection. And those are the developmental roots of hope. Literally, that's where, you know, go back to those uh, core questions that we posed at the beginning of the book. Um, it All of that kind of sense of hope um, and connection has its roots in our earliest moment-to-moment interactions as people, as babies get to know their caregivers and caregivers get to know them in this messy kind of way. But the lesson going forward is that you can change. I mean, our brains change throughout our lives, but it takes many, many moments. So we need, if, we're, if we did not have a robust opportunity for repair and there are feelings of hopelessness, that the, the way forward is through immersion in a whole new set of relationships, not just a one- or two-dimensional solution, but being immersed in relationships that give opportunity for this kind of micro mismatch and repair which can build more of an internal sense of hope absolutely so we need to have lots of relationships and wherever we travel wherever we work within our family there's so many opportunities to really pay attention and listen listening is another skill that people have to work on so that they can really get to know the other person because by getting to know the other person you get to know yourself right so it's important yes. so i i want to thank you and your co-author ed trocknick trocknick um and claudia gold author of the power of discord for helping us and showing us that relationships with attachment figures, that would be our parents and caretakers, are often difficult, sometimes messy, and sometimes filled with discord, as mismatches may rupture the attuned or desire alignments that are possible and that most people desire in relationships. The choice to reframe ruptured relationships are great opportunities for personal and collective growth. To read more about this, go to www.claudiamgoldmd.com. In summarizing today's episode of Healing from Within, we have explored the dance of connection and disconnection from attachment figures that molds our nervous system, our emotional lives, and our sense of self, 
and also our ability to be in harmony and balance with others. We find there are scientifically based ways for negotiating the complexities of social interactions, and we find rather than searching for perfection, which is really impossible, we find that the mistakes we find, we and everyone around us make at times, as parents, friends, and lovers, that the repair of our mistakes is really what matters. Reframing any disparities or ruptures can be seen as opportunities rather than burdens and can afford us the interactive reconnection experiences that will provide the foundation for building a more joyful, prosperous, purposeful life. Relationships offer us the means to refine our thoughts, our actions, and evolve as human and soul being. The authors write, In creating something, whether a piece of sculpture, a painting, or a book, you go through a lot of material that isn't quite right until you find your way to what you really want to communicate. When you anxiously strive to produce a fully formed idea from the start, you can become stuck, unable to create anything. In contrast, by embracing the mess, you find your own artistic voice. In the same way, when you seek to create yourself anew out of a history of distorted and maybe troubled meanings in new relationships, you need to move through countless imperfect interactions that aren't quite right. Claudia, Ed, and Cheryl would like you to remember that each of the traumas or wounds of childhood were not in vain, but were the glue of our evolving strong sense of soul and ego, eventually balancing our relationships and our challenges throughout our lives. A clearer sense of who we are, who we have become, and the possibilities for continuous awareness and higher consciousness is the desired result. I am Cheryl Glick, host of Healing from Within, author of a new book in the trilogy, A New Life Awaits, and I invite you to visit my website, CherylGlick.com, to read about and listen to visionaries, spiritualists, scientists, medical professionals, psychologists, lawyers, educators, and those in the arts and music fields who share their insights on the nature of human and divine life. Shows may also be heard on webtalkradio.net and dreamvision7radio.com. Thank you.